Hi everyone! Thank you for joining us. This is Are these books drunk? <laughs> uh, maybe I am. <laughs> I'm Brandy. I'm Emma. And this has officially been our first book without our dear, sweet mama, Mariana. She'll be back soon, y'all. Don't worry. She better be. <laughs> but this is your book club with a twist. And Brandy and I are still serving as your happy hour girlfriends. That's right. Yeah. Last week, we speculated about a few things that need major closure and wondering how they'll be resolved. Got more into the magical element of the title of the book talked about moments in our lives that could have gone very wrong by not listening to our guts, and played a very silly drinking game entitled The Top 10 Showstoppers H.H. Holmes Pitched for the World's Fair. (laughs) Thanks for that, Brandy. (laughs) We had a pretty fun time. I guess you could say we were fair ladies. Oh my god. Well, Emma, I'm trying to be a drunk lady. So tell me what we're drinking today. (laughs) Okay, sure. Well, I'm so excited to introduce another cocktail that gives me an opportunity to make you eye roll and groan (laughs) at the play on words that is the name of this drink. Okay. Your cocktail pairing today is called the Cereal Killer. Oh, I guess I ruined the cleverness by having to spell this one out for you. It's cereal spelled like the breakfast food you eat. C-E-R-E-A-L. Okay, okay. And if you guessed that this drink has cereal as a component, you would be correct. Oh, wow. I'm excited to get into this one today. I just hope it doesn't kill me. (laughs) I'm scared of this one. It's, it looks so, it smells so good. Here to share the recipe for this delicious cocktail is our delicious bartender. Oh, my. <laughs> Ricardo. <laughs> Ricardo. Ciao, Brandy. Welcome to the bar. Hi. Today we're going to make something very different than Don't usual. tell me. I'm excited. So we're going to need something different than the usual recipe because we're going to use cereal because the cocktail of today is called Cereal Killer. Okay. All right. Pun intended. (laughs) A lot of pun intended. (laughs) Pun intended. (laughs) (laughs) So we need a little bit of preparation. We're going to choose our favorite brand of uh, cereal. I would go for something maybe flavored in some way not heavily flavored but like some cinnamon or like that's yeah. that's my personal taste okay. um we're gonna soak half of a cup of cereal in four ounces of milk and okay. i used oat milk yep and we're gonna soak them for 10-15 minutes in a way that the milk is actually getting the flavor profile of the cereal and then the rest of the ingredients for this cocktail are simple. It's a short cocktail because it has other two ingredients. And we're going to need an ounce of amaretto and an ounce of um, Irish cream liqueur. Oh, so, yummy. Baileys, basically. Sounds so good. <laughs> other than these two spirits, we're going to take 
our soaked milk and we're gonna just strain it and use just a couple of ounces. And we are gonna put all the ingredients in the shaker, shake and strain up in a coupe or if you prefer in a martini glass. And Beautiful. we are gonna decorate the cocktail with a little bit of crunchiness. So we're gonna sparkle Ooh. a little bit of cereal on top of the cocktail that is gonna oh, have yummy. a beautiful, nice foam. And here you have your cereal killer. Ricardo, let me ask you something, because I really wanted to do a little, I use Cinnamon Toast Crunch, and I really wanted to do a crunch uh, rim on my glass. Ooh. But what do you use, if you're not using lemon or lime in a cocktail, what do you use to make the rim sticky to make Simple stuff stick syrup. to it? Uh, okay. All right. You can now wet we the edges of the glass where you actually want the rim with simple right. syrup. Okay. And everything is going to remain there stuck. Oh, that sounds amazing. Yep. Okay. Next time. Next time. Next time. Alla, vostra, alla tua salute, Brandy. So for oh, the serial killer. <laughs> thanks, Ricardo. Ciao, Brandy. Ciao. Bye. All right, woman, here we go. Cheers. Cheers. Mm. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Mm. Is that a good oh, wow, or like a scared oh, wow? No, it's a delicious oh, wow. I, know, I really so was not expecting, well, I didn't know what to expect, but I didn't expect <laughs> to like it, I think, for sure. <laughs> Well, let's share. What cereal did you use? Mm. I used Cinnamon Toast Crunch. Mm. And I used Cap'n Crunch. Oh, that sounds good. Such a childhood throwback. I feel like those are both very good options. Agreed. Like, I don't think this would have been as enjoyable if we used, like, Fruity Pebbles, you know? Oh, oh, I don't know. That could be interesting, but I bet it would be a gross color. You like Fruity Pebbles (laughs) with Baileys? Like, bleh. (laughs) <laughs> It'd be like a gray glop. <laughs> mm. My usual go-to breakfast cereal is um, a honey bunches of oats with almonds, and I, I don't think this would be as good with that either. No, <laughs> might be a little, might be a little weird. Or like a Cheerios that could be pretty bland. Yeah, I I do want to say I had thought about trying to use uh, like shredded mini wheats since that was the cereal. Well, shredded oh. wheat cereal was born at the world's fair oh, so for a second i was like oh maybe that could be cool but then i thought i thought the same thing that could be pretty bland Ugh. and gross all right this week on what millet names chicago day the world's fair sees over 751,000 visitors obliterating the record of 397,000 previously set by france's world fair it's more people than have ever attended any peaceful event on a single day in history up to this time a peaceful event. Let's just a have to interject. Exactly. <laughs> Burnham and Millet prepare for the fair's grand closing day ceremonies, which Burnham hopes will forever seal it as a great triumph. But the day never comes. Patrick Prendergast, finally fed up at not having received the job he believes he's entitled to, shoots and kills Mayor oh. Harrison two days before the ceremonies, which are subsequently canceled and instead become a memorial. Holmes, meanwhile, begins to feel the pressure of his creditors and the families of the missing women. In what seems like one of his insurance scams, he buys a life insurance policy on his confidant, Benjamin Peitzel, and collects using a supposedly fake body. 
Holmes is arrested and sitting in jail for the fraud when it is discovered that the body actually is Peitzel and that Peitzel's children are also now missing. The eventual discovery of Peitzel's children's bodies leads to the searching of Holmes's murder castle, where authorities finally realize the depth of his darkness. He's executed by hanging in 1896. His final words to the executioner? Take your time, old man. Ah. Uh. Burnham lived 47 more days after Millet went down on the Titanic in 1912. He was on vacation with his family at the time. <laughs> What a fucking depressing ending of a book. Good Lord. I thought Lord. it was an amazing ending. And on that note, I feel like we've got to start. This is episode four of a book. We've got to start with yes. our vote. So once again, in a good happy hour, we can each down a full bottle of wine glass by glass. <laughs> so I want to know, Emma, how would you rate this book and why? Do you give it one glass, a half a bottle, a full bottle, or a full bottle and a shot of tequila, Mama Mariana style. Uh, In short, how drunk is this book? I think this book is half a bottle drunk. Mm. You know what, actually? I might even say it's like a half bottle plus a glass. Okay. So like However you many almost finish the bottle, but you don't quite finish the bottle. Yes, exactly. Okay. And I think... I really liked the history of the book, but I wish that I had been more taken by the aspect of all of the the architecture and all of the other stories as opposed to just being so taken by Holmes' storyline. Uh. Like, it bummed me out that I found that not even just in terms of my interest as, like, a subject material, but I just felt like those were written a little more... It, it kept me more captivated than anything else. And, of course, maybe that's not fair because the subject material is... Right. ...quote-unquote more interesting. Right. But I also just found myself overall feeling a little overwhelmed by all of the characters and all of the history and all of the yeah, dates. Yeah, I feel you. But all in all, I, I liked the I liked the the book ending. I the liked how it started ending. and where it ended. Okay. Oh, 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 right. Like the book was book with, ended. Right. Right. We start and end with Burnham about it. on mm-hmm. this. <laughs> what about you? Wow. I um, I totally disagree. I'm going to give this a full bottle and a shot of tequila. Wow. I freaking loved it. I, I think I grew to love it more than I did when I started the book because like yeah. you, it was really overwhelming in the beginning. All of the names, all the history – there's so much to digest that at points it was like confusing. I kept having to go back and reread yeah. and try to figure out who was who. But by the end of it, I found myself equally as taken with Burnham's story as with Holmes. Hmm. And I I mean, I found myself thinking like, oh, I've got to go visit the Flatiron building now. And I feel like every time I pass that building, I'm going to think of Burnham. You know what That's I mean? True. Every That's time true. I pass Cracker Jack at the grocery store, I'm going to think of the World's Fair. Like... I, I even found myself thinking, like, I'm going to have to go to Chicago to try to see the rookery, try to see some of these that buildings. That is true. Like, it's definitely a story I feel like that's going to stick with me for a while. That's totally valid. I mean, it's your opinion is valid anyway. But <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but I actually, like, I really know what you mean by that because I, found, I feel the same that I think that this will stick with me in terms of whenever I see or read about something. I agree with you. <laughs> okay at the start of this section of the book I was like wait what the fuck 
does an actual tornado touch down on this fucking fair? Is that the impression you got or did you think it was just a storm? Oh, I didn't think tornado. Well, if you remember, the storm happens while people are still on the um, oh, on the Ferris, the Ferris wheel. wheel, and they don't. It doesn't sound like they ever stop it from running. That's true. Um, and it sounds like there are giant ostrich feathers flying around in the air. Like it just sounds like absolute madness. A storm of epic proportion. Yeah, it it just seems like Burnham must have pissed off God or something. What what? has this man done to deserve I think you you framed it like that exactly like that last week you were like he did something to piss God off he had to have like it just seems like an endless slew of shit yeah yeah befalling this literally and metaphorically literally yeah Yeah. totally (laughs) no it's true and especially like how it ended I mean, we'll get there, but like the whole destruction of the Ferris wheel, it just made me so sad. The destruction oh, of know. all of the characters. Of the, the, yeah. The whole thing. And the, the talk about the destruction of the fair also was really sad. And they at were going to just set it on fire? Yeah, they talked about <laughs> blowing it up so as not to have it fall into ruin. And like, I don't know, a part of me was like, oh God, like there's, it sounds like there's a lot of homeless population in Chicago at this time like surely Mm -hmm. good use can be made of these buildings Mm -hmm. and you know so much money was poured into them and everything but then I do also understand the the desire to keep it as this clean pristine beautiful memory and if you have it falling into disrepair and becoming part of the black city then it starts to lose some of its white cityness, you know what I mean? I get that. I'm just like, then why would you guys put all of this money into something that was only going to be there for how long was it there for? It sounds like it was. It ran till October 30th, so like six months. I think it might have been six months. Yeah. Jeez. But they did end up recouping their money. The investors did. So. And, you know, Wild Bill and all them made, like, a shit ton of money. He made, like, millions of dollars off of it and all that. Yeah, which he then lost. Couldn't even pay for his funeral. Oh, I my know, God. I know. So sad. But as we, as, as we got to the final sort of chapters about the fair, this sentence really, this line really got me. It said, long before the fair's end, people began mourning its inevitable passage. Mm. The fair was so perfect, its grace and beauty like an assurance that for as long as it lasted, nothing truly bad could happen to anyone, anywhere. And when I read that line, I was like, I, I, I understood once again, I understood the importance of needing to keep that memory safe and mm-hmm. clean and unmarred. But I wondered, have you ever had a chapter closing in your life that you sort of pre-mourned, you know, the end of an era for you, so to speak, that you knew you would look back on throughout your life and kind of miss? Do you have that? Uh, of course I do. Oh. But the one that really sticks out is surprisingly when we finally got rid of our first apartment in New York. So when I moved to New York from Philly, I moved with one of my best friends, Richard, and our other best friend, Brad, came later. He had been in production. So Richard and I actually did the move, and we're the ones that found the apartment. It was in Washington Heights on 181st. It was this perfect building in this perfect neighborhood on this perfect tiny little street. 
And we called it Maga because it was Maga Place was the name of our street. <laughs> so for the length of time we had the apartment, we, we just referred to it as Maga. And Aww. so it was already really important because it was our first home in New York. Yeah. But then we ended up keeping the apartment for 10 years. Oh, my God. It was like the family heirloom, you know? Oh, like, that's so wonderful. It was, it was a really special place. And not just because it was our first apartment in New York, but it was – it kind of like epitomizes my 20s here. Do you know, yeah. like when I think about well, that years. entire, yeah, that whole decade of my life, even though I wasn't living there for the whole 10, I lived there for five years. Uh, and so it's actually funny because I, when I moved out, that was already like a, like a baby morning of the apartment because yeah. I was so sad to move out of that space. And it symbolized, you know, me moving on not from my best friends but it was the next stage of our life like moving up in adulthood so it wasn't important just because of that but it also we housed so many people in that apartment anytime we had friends that were going through a spot or needed somewhere to crash people stayed on our couch sometimes for a week sometimes for a month sometimes even for two months it kind of felt like a hostel with the amount of people that we had coming and going And because all three of us were actors, anytime someone booked a gig, we'd have to sublet the room. So it was just this constant rotating door of people coming in and out. That's so cool. I mean, now it would drive me insane. (laughs) But at that point in my life, it was. was You can only do that in your 20s. (laughs) Yes. Like, I'm still pretty good friends with a couple people that were our sublets. And then later on throughout the years, we started using it as an Airbnb and people would come and stay more full time full term. I haven't done the math in a long time, but there was a moment where we tallied up how many people had stayed in that apartment throughout the years. And it was like over 25. Wow. Was insane. So, and, and we became really close with the super Oswaldo, who by the time we officially moved out was 75. And that was like, that was a really emotional goodbye. So, Anyway, the apartment had been with us for 10 years, but I hadn't lived there for a while. But when it was time for us to finally clear everything out to move out, because Brad was away on tour for a year and Richard had moved to Austin, so there was no one that could stay that could keep it. And so Richard flew in from Austin and the two of us, just like how we had started and moved in together, the two of us cleaned it out together. Oh, what a bookend. Oh, my God. so many tears we spackled all the damn holes did a lot of cleaning oh and then closed the door and said goodbye and it was it really kind of feels like the end I mean it truly was the end of an era you know letting go of Maga and I really hope that there are people that live there now that value it and cherish it as much as we did it kind of reminds me of that last episode of Friends, yeah. you know, when they're all in the apartment about to give give it up because Monica That's exactly sorry, what it spoilers, felt like. <laughs> Monica and Chandler are about to move. And so they give up the apartment. And it's just like, I think that the last shot might be them leaving the keys on the counter, turning mm. off the lights, closing the door, and then it's just uh, the empty apartment. It's exactly what it was like. Oh. Yeah, it was pretty sad. Oh. 
What was what, – what about you? Do you have one? Well, you know this story, but I've never told this story on the podcast before. I don't think so. So oh. a couple of years back, I booked a commercial that I sort of knew had a chance of becoming a campaign. So it was super exciting for me. Oh. But there was no guarantee that, you know, that was actually going to happen. So as far as I knew, we were doing one two-day shoot and that was it. Um, we were shooting in New Jersey. So the morning of the shoot, very early morning, I was in a car – heading over the bridge to get to the shoot. And the sun was like just starting to come up and just starting to hit the buildings, like Mm -hmm. this gorgeous amber light. The streets were still empty. The city just looked stunningly beautiful. Mm -hmm. And I was so nervous because this job was more of a hosting gig. It wasn't something I had done before. It quite honestly wasn't something I thought I could do. I was pretty terrified headed to that job. Um, But so I'm going over the bridge and I remember, I crisply remember having the thought, enjoy this moment because even if this job continues and does turn into a campaign, one day it's going to end. Mm. And I think I was even like pre-nostalgic for the nerves that I was having. I kept thinking, if this turns into a campaign, you're going to get so used to doing this, you won't feel these nerves again. Like Mm. this is going to be the only time this is happening. And I remember uh, Redbone by Childish Gambino was playing on my headphones. So even now when I hear that song, I'm like back in that car again. And I, you know, I did end up doing that job for a couple of years. It it did eventually turn into a campaign. uh, And the nerves never actually did go away. Oh, really? (laughs) That is the very job where I met our very devoted listener, Adrian (gasps) Orozco. That's right! That was another good thing to come out of that then. Yeah, that was a great thing to come out of that. Aww. We love you, Adrian. We do. <laughs> and there'll be another campaign like that for you, Brandy. I know I it. I hope so. I hope there so. will we'll be. See. Well, one of the first things also that we learned that we read this week was this creepy-ass reporter, Dreiser, who I thought there was going to be more made of him than there was because it started off with, like, such a bang. It was the guy that accompanied the 24 teachers who won the contest. Right. And he was, like, so enamored by this specific woman named Sarah White. I I agree with you. I thought more was going to come from that as well. And then he proposed to her, and she said no, and then it kind of went away for a while, and then he came right back at the end. Right. And I just thought that was weird. I it felt a little bit like a red herring because I I thought maybe something's going to happen to this woman like is she going to fall into Holmes's yeah net somehow like why are we focusing so much on this I agree with you well also there was this tiny little moment where there was like there was one teacher that wasn't buying his shit and it the it said her name was Sullivan period and then we didn't hear anything else and, and I was, was like well wait who is that but then I kept I. And I actually want to know, was it Annie Sullivan, Helen Keller's teacher? Oh, I had not made that connection. I don't so know. So now I want to go back and figure that out. Because we did actually hear about Helen Keller for a hot second. For a hot second. In last week's chapters. Right. And so I just thought for you to be like, her name is Sullivan. And then we hear nothing else. I'm like, right. what, are you, what are we doing here? Yeah. But I do wonder if it was Annie Sullivan, and that would be cool, because she wouldn't take— That would be interesting. She wouldn't take shit from no man. No. So this week, Holmes ends up in Texas, we find out, right? He flees Chicago because he's feeling the heat from 
all sorts of people, people he owes money to. There's a lawyer who's united some of these people and they're trying to come after him. Mm -hmm. It seems like he's getting increasing pressure from uh, some of the families of these missing women. So he grabs Georgiana. He takes off to Texas. And this blew my fucking mind. He fully has plans to build another murder castle in Mm -hmm. the exact style of this one in Texas. Mm -hmm. Which is fucking (laughs) crazy. Like, I feel like this man is beginning to disintegrate a little bit. You know what I mean? Like, he doesn't seem like his usual sort of calculated, careful self. Yeah, he's spiraling a little bit. Yeah, it does feel that way, especially Mm -hmm. once he disposes of Peitzel and takes off with those kids. I'm like, what what is what is your plan now? And he just starts like roaming the country, it seems like, with these children. Yeah, it's like part of it is a game, I think. Part of it but a game for himself. Yeah. Yeah. Which is what a lot of twisted serial killers' minds yeah, he's getting a lot of satisfaction out of this, for sure. Yeah, just doing it for himself. But I think there also is an element where he's really just flying by the seat of his pants and doesn't really have a plan. I agree. I feel like now that he doesn't have his murder castle, he's used to, I think, a certain amount of freedom and a certain amount of ease now in being able to commit these murders. Mm-hmm. And now without his murder castle, he doesn't have that. And so it does feel like he's needing to find other ways to sort of satiate his bloodlust. And he's doing that maybe by playing with these people because we find out that at one point he's got the three Peitzel children in a hotel. Mm-hmm. And in the very same city, he's got their mother, but she uh, doesn't know they're in the same place. Five minutes and away. Five minutes away. And uh. he's got Georgiana in the same city somewhere else, like yeah. in a third random location. It's just crazy. And he's moving them around the country <laughs> in this way. Like, that sounds freaking exhausting to yeah. me. Yeah. But somehow he's getting off on it. Well, and I also saw it reflected in once he's arrested and he's in jail, right. how he's buttering up the guards and getting everyone to think that he's charming, which is reflected, as you said in your opening, how the guy that was going to hang him felt for him in the moment. And it was as if he was saying, like, take your time, old man. It was as if he could maybe change his mind. Right. Crazy. I actually was doing some uh, extracurricular uh, investigating. Of course you were. This uh, this weekend. And I found out that the reason actually that he even ended up getting caught because, you know, he was held in prison for fraud. It was for insurance fraud is how he ended up in jail for that period of time. And then I think he was released on bail. Georgiana came and bailed him out of jail. Uh, So he was in jail for 10 days and he was imprisoned together with a man who was also kind of a fraudster and a criminal. And Holmes had made a deal with him. Holmes, in order to claim some insurance money, needed a crooked lawyer to help him. And so he enlisted this con's help in prison with him and said, if you can help me do this, I'll give you part of the insurance money. Well, Holmes never gives him the insurance money. And the guy finds out that Peitzel was, in fact, killed and Mm -hmm. Holmes just never made good on his promise. So this guy reports the murder to the authorities. And that's 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 the the only reason. Yeah. That's the thing that sets this whole chain of events in motion. If he had not done that, he might have gotten away with this for much longer. 
And then my hero, Detective Guy, are on the scene. Oh, I know. I was shocked. And I think I think that I, because I had to go back and, like, double-check my facts. But it seems as if he started his search for these children on June mm-hmm. 26th. Mm-hmm. And he found them on July 7th. And he did a lot of traveling in between. So he he yeah. solved it pretty quickly. Oh, I didn't realize it was that short a window of time. Right? That is really quick. Because he was traveling from city to city, too. And all the way up to Canada, right? Because he ends up murdering the girls in Toronto. That's why I'm wondering if maybe, like, I misunderstood. But it said he started his search on June 26th, and definitely they were uncovered on July 7th. Yeah, 1895. Huh, interesting. Okay. I kept wondering, I kept, I mean, this must all just go back to Holmes's charm, but... Why was Peitzel working for Holmes? How much did Peitzel know about what was going on in the murder castle? And he cannot have been telling his wife about all of those doings. Otherwise, she would never have entrusted her children to Holmes. Definitely was not telling her. (laughs) But I I wish we knew more about what Peitzel knew Mm. and how much he was actually involved in the whole situation. I mean, my guess is that Holmes was offering him a significant amount of money, none of which he would probably see. I agree. I agree with that. But he must have but been it would have seeing to be, that money. Right. Otherwise, oh, he would true, have taken true, true, off. true, true, true. Probably wasn't his money, but. Right. Who knows where that's coming from? Well, on this conversation of Holmes, I have a really complicated relationship with feeling empathy for people that do terrible things. Hmm. Because I find myself often finding a way to validate their bad behavior, usually coming from having sympathy for their troubled childhood because I feel like it all goes back to a shitty childhood. Right. And since this week's chapters dealt with the death penalties of Prendergast (sighs) and Holmes, I found myself being reminded of this twisted mentality that I've cultivated around feeling for murderers. (laughs) So... I'm curious where you stand on this matter. Do you do this too? How do you handle dealing mentally with all the shit that people come about in our past and present lives? Yeah, I mean, I really like this question because this is this is a really complicated mess for me too, like in my yeah. head. The reason it becomes difficult for me not to empathize is because there have actually been studies that show that this kind of behavior, especially like serial killer behavior, could be a predisposition based on the development of the brain or certain chemical reactions in the brain. Mm. So, for example, there have been studies that show that serial killers have a 5 to 10% reduction in gray matter around their limbic system, which is where emotions are processed. They also have a smaller amygdala, which makes them empathy deficient as compared with somebody with a normal-sized amygdala. So whereas our brains are programmed to feel empathy for people, theirs aren't, like, at all in some cases, at least not as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think there are also, like, as you mentioned, childhood and stuff like that. There are other social factors that I think usually come into play when you're talking about the making of a serial killer. Mm -hmm. But at their core, I think... Their biology is often different. So in some ways, it's like, do they have a predisposition in some ways for this behavior? Right. And obviously, that doesn't mean that I think it's okay. And I'm not saying that everyone with those similar brain deficiencies is a serial killer because we know that's not true, too. But for me, that's enough to lend a little bit of empathy 
for people mm-hmm. who possibly are coming into the world with a different biology than the rest of us and then are right. facing environmental and social, you know, factors that are worsening the possibilities for that behavior. You know what I mean? I don't know. I don't know what the answer to that is, but some people don't, we don't all start at the same place. We don't all come into this world on equal footing. Of course. So I think it's hard to say, you know, if I were born with a smaller amygdala and, you know, whatever else, could I possibly be that? Maybe. Yeah. Which then, I mean, I think, and that's where it gets really complicated because if you know that about, say, your child, right? where do you go from there? What do you and do? Like, and how do you, where are the signs that would lead to that being true? I mean, it makes me think about, and I actually talked about this when we read The Push. Mm, oh, right. But that film called There's Something About Kevin, or right. We Need to Talk About Kevin. Yes. Where there was obviously some chemical imbalance in his brain that made mm-hmm. him act a certain way, but that I think right. was then exacerbated by his parents' behavior towards him. So right. it is such it's such a complicated question because it makes me think, you know, if I had a kid and I and I and there were X-rays of their brain that showed that that could be true, where do you go from there? Right. I read a really interesting article, and I apologize because this is an unsavory topic, but I read a really interesting article several years back about a teenage boy. He knew that he had the tendencies of a pedophile, which is which is gross. And I think also his mother figured out what was going on. They did a lot of therapy and stuff, but there was just kind of no... There was no curing him of this, but he did know that it was wrong. And he actually ended up forming a support group for other people like him, people that he found online and they could meet and talk about what they were going through and all this kind of stuff. Wow. And it was it was meant to be like an AA that kept them honest, you know, that kept them from acting on these impulses. They were working to help each other through something that there is no cure for. Their brains are wired this way, which is really kind of heartbreaking if you think about it because they know that it's wrong. and They They know they cannot act upon it, it. but they also cannot help it. That's really hard. I can't imagine going through life that way. Horrific, really. Wow, that's really fascinating. And I think that's why a lot of times, especially kids, like kids that have severe developmental issues, other kids have a really hard time knowing how to interact with them because they they don't see that as quote unquote normal behavior. It's, you know, they think that that person is weird or disturbing and then um, treat them as such. Mm -hmm. And so it's this like vicious cycle. I think it's just like when you don't know... Well, this is getting into such a bigger topic, so we don't actually have to go down that road. But I think that's why people are so terrible to people a lot of times just because – and I'm not going to say they're ignorant, but when they don't have the answer to something, it's fearful. Right. Which is really sad, but we see it happen to Prendergast this week too. I I really believe Prendergast Mm. was – he had some mental issues going Mm -hmm. on. And when he goes into that office, you know, as far as he's concerned, showing up for the job that is his or will soon be his 
And these men are basically laughing at him to his face. He knows that he's being ridiculed. Um, And it kind of sets him off. And he ends up, you know, doing what he does. And ironically, he's represented by the very lawyer that he had written a few of those postcards to. Trude had some of the postcards that Prendergast had sent to him. And I did some reading from the back of the book. Some of those postcards still exist. And I think Larson was able to go see some of the postcards that Prendergast had sent to Trude. And he said you could see how much pressure had been placed on the pencil to the paper. The indents were so deep. They they just couldn't have been made by somebody who was in their normal right mind. There was something else going on. It's a good observation. But actually, I'm glad that you just said that about reading in the back of the book because that was also, we had asked that question last week, like, how does Eric Larson have all the answers to these things that it doesn't seem like he should know? And so it was nice that he did make note of that. He had the disclaimer at the end that was, he, based on his research and his assumptions and following a timeline, he made supported theories. Right. Which makes sense, but... Right. I also thought it was really interesting that in the back of the book, he makes mention of uh, studying in cold blood, Truman Capote's book. And I was like, oh, Um, that's so smart. Yeah, which was really cool. The other thing that I thought was so funny that was not even clarified, but just last week I was saying how that that line about night is the magician of the fair – and then I referenced Walt Disney, like Cinderella's Castle. Oh, Come my to find God. out yes. that Walt Disney's father helped build the White City. Right. And that Walt's magic kingdom may well be a descendant. And I was like, oh, that's so funny. And then also we learned that the Lincoln Memorial can trace yes. its heritage to the fair, which we learned in week one was is one of your favorite pieces of architecture. Right, right. So it's so funny how full circle this has come. Yeah, it was it was really lovely. I thought that Larson tied in just how far Burnham's reach extends even after he's passed away. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? His legacy continues on in this sort of fire he ignited for architecture and for what cities and buildings could be. I thought it was really beautiful this line towards the back of the book. That just makes it clear how much he loved Chicago. He's standing overlooking the city with a group of his friends. And he says, you'll see it lovely. I never will. But it will be lovely. And I think it's funny because we I think we said it in our very first episode covering this book. What a clean city Chicago is. It definitely is a city that when I first went there, it has such a sleek appearance to it that I love New York, but it does not have that. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> like, Chicago just has a look and a feel about it that's all its own. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was interesting that Burnham sort of has this foresight almost. Like he can see into the future to what things will become or can become. Uh-huh. And he sort of knows ahead of time that he's never going to be able to see it that way, but that it will exist in that way. So sad. And then here are all of these things that come from the white city that he helped build. Just so beautiful. And thank fucking God, Burnham finally got those honorary degrees from Harvard and Yale. I know. He only had to move fucking heaven and earth for them. But I feel like like it was validation that that he really had been needing 
that he's good enough, that he's as good, if not, you know, better, more accomplished, worthy, all of these things that I feel like he had spent his entire life trying to prove. Especially after all the shit that he went through. I, I did a little, like, cheer in my head. I, I like, know yeah, you did. I, I actually thought about you, Derek, because you were like, oh, it is Harvard and you failed failure. I know so you did. <laughs> Changing gears a little bit. I thought it was really interesting learning about how as recently in 1997, we hear about this Michael Swango character, the physician who was arrested in O'Hare Airport for murdering his patients with lethal doses of drugs. Yeah. Which leads me into... What? Welcome to Deep Dive. Oh, shit. Recommendation for a deeper dive into an aspect of the book we're reading. This deep dive, I want to recommend the podcast, Dr. Death, that focuses on shocking and horrifying cases of medical malpractice. For this deep dive, I want to zero in on season one, which follows the story of Dr. Christopher Dunch, a Texas surgeon who was convicted of medical malpractice after 31 of his patients were left seriously injured after he operated on them and two patients died during his operation. You may have actually heard me plug this in part one of this book, but now that we're closing out this book and learning more about H.H. Holmes, this felt too reminiscent not to bring it up again in more detail. Wow. You can also check out the series, the TV series entitled Dr. Death, based on the podcast, streaming on Peacock, came out in 2021, and starring Joshua Jackson as Dr. Dunch, with supporting parts played by Christian Slater, Grace Gummer, and Alec Baldwin. The stories are horrific, but had me binging almost all of the podcasts in one car ride. So again, that's Dr. Death, the podcast, or the streaming series. Wow. Thank you for that. That sounds good. It's terrifying. It's terrible. <laughs> it's terrible to say that sounds good. I it's, know. You know, but it does sound good. And it is. I'll watch anything Joshua Jackson does. So. I know, right? One little thing I wanted to bring up before we even think about closing out this book is that I don't know if you um, had become aware, Emma, that there was some speculation that Holmes might have ev- actually evaded his execution. Hmm? Um, and it's it's kind of very briefly mentioned at the end of this book that these weird deaths sort of befall many of the people who were involved in bringing him to justice. And, you know, we find out that the priest who gave him his last rites dies mysteriously there, you know, there, there's mention of several people who have a mysterious thing mm-hmm. befall them, and they call it Holmes's curse, as mm-hmm. if he is the devil, and you know, after his execution, is coming back right. and making these things happen. Right, right. But there is actually a theory out there that he faked this execution, and that it was possibly a an already dead body that ended up swinging from the gallows and that he escaped and continued to uh, murder thereafter. But where did you hear this speculation? Is this in the, in the series that was your, well, you can, you can find like articles about it too, but yes, it is in that series. But I thought, I thought it was worth (sighs) mentioning because at the end of this book, you know, there is mention of the curse of Holmes 
um, which this theory is sort of born from, that it's not a curse, it's that he kept living. He didn't die. Oh. I don't know. He was charming enough that I wonder. That it's a little plausible. You know, we know that he sold his memoir from prison and got paid a lot of money for it. So he was not a poor man when he, you know, was headed to his execution. Could he have greased the wheels a little bit with a couple of guards? Like, he was definitely granted things that no, that were not normal for a prisoner of the time. You know what I mean? He had his burial done a very specific way. Not normal for that to be granted. He just had very, you know, his memoir being published, not normal for for someone who's sitting on death row. So he clearly had a lot of power, even from a prison cell. Uh-huh, right. Uh, Who knows? Do you think part of that speculation is because, like it was noted in the book, no one actually knows the precise location of his burial in the cemetery? Well, they do know there's just no grave... There's no marker for it, but they know where the plot is. Oh. But it's, I, and I think it's mentioned in the book, he's buried in cement. Yeah. Like, so, t- like, like, no one's feet. robbing that grave. Yeah. No one's going to come for him the way he came for people. And there's no, and there's no headstone, which is also strange. For someone like him, it seems like he would want that Right, attention. who would want attention and power. Right. Ugh, I don't want to believe that's true. Who knows? And I feel like, yet again, you in some ways theorized on the right path last week. Because by the end of this book, everything had fallen to shit. Burnham and Olmstead died in very sad ways. Ferris died and his wheel was demolished for steel. Oh, I know. Buffalo Bill lost all his money and Wild West and died. Dreiser married Sarah but cheated on her repeatedly. Prendergast was executed. Harrison was murdered. Ruth's wife is depressed. But Soul Bloom thrived. Yes, he did. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, fucking Brandy. (laughs) And became, of all things, a politician. I was like, yep, that's exactly correct. That sounds like what that guy was meant to do. (laughs) Well, that seems like a good place to put in our final question of our final episode of the book. Okay, let's get it. Very simply phrased. Fuck, Mary kill any of the characters in the book. <laughs> yes. Free perfect. reign. I have to tell you, Emma, I was, I, I, I think you and I are going to have the exact same, definitely two of the answers I think are going to be the exact same. You the think? only wild card is for me is the fuck card. And I still think we might answer the same thing. Okay, well, now I'm, now I'm very curious. So you have to go, should we just say them at the same time? I wonder, but let's do fuck last because that's, that's the one I'm not sure about. Okay, we'll start with kill. Okay, on the count of three, one, two, three, Holmes. Holmes. Yeah. Obviously. Obviously. Okay. So now Mary. Okay. On the count of three, one, two, three, Burnham. Detective Geyer. Oh, oh no! All right, and for fuck, I said Annie Oakley. Who else? Amazing. (laughs) Who did you say? Bloom. (laughs) Hey, 
You'll never be poor. That guy, oh, that guy would never let that happen. <laughs> My sugar daddy. All right, y'all. Thank you all so much for listening. We love hearing from you all. So if you think of a detail we might have missed, a question you want to ask, or something you want to recommend, hit us up on the gram. Yeah. Gang, right? The gram. Yeah, sure. And you. Yeah, you. The one who loves our podcast and still hasn't reviewed us. <gasps> what are you waiting for? Get on over to Apple Podcasts, make up a cute little handle, and leave us that five-star review. Yeah. So excited to announce our next book selection. For the month of October, we'll be reading The Wife Upstairs by Rachel Hawkins. Oh my gosh. A reimagining of Jane Eyre as a modern-day Southern Gothic mystery novel set in Alabama. I'm so oh excited. my god, I'm excited. For part one, we'll be reading to the end of chapter 10. Stay tuned on our Instagram page at Are These Books Drunk? That's the gram to yeah. find out what the first cocktail pairing for this book will be so that you can read along and sip along with us. Because it's always happy, happy hour here. here. Woo! Bye. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>